Good afternoon. Hello, my name's John. It's nice to be here, having a non-awkward conversation. Um, so, just before we start, I just want to say as well, I've, as I've been preparing this, I was really hoping that it would be like about half an hour or something like that, but I've just really struggled to get it to that sort of length. So it's probably going to be a little bit longer, so hopefully, you know, you're up for that. Um, but feel free to go when, when, when you've had enough. Um, but I got a, I got a, a, a text couple of months ago from, from Paul Lowe saying, oh, hey, mate, um, are you around to, for cause to live for? And I was like, and, and he said, is there any chance you'd be up for doing a seminar at the, at the cause to live for? I was like, yes. Texted back, yeah, I love the cause to live for. I'm totally there. Brilliant. What, what, do you, what do you want the seminar? Have you got any idea what you want the seminar to be about? And then he sent me a text back and I was like, oh, I see what you did there. Nice. I'm locked in now. I've already said yes. Um, so yes, this seminar is about pornography, um, and I'll be, I'm aware that there'll probably be people in the room who are, um, f- this is currently part of your life, this is something that you're struggling with, or it's just part of your life, and you're not even sure if it's a problem, but you're here because you're interested to know that. It might be there's people here who are supporting others in, in, in the midst of this, um, and um, it might, I'm guessing there might be some people here who, you know, you're currently exploring faith and you've come along to Cause to Live For and uh, you're like, why, why, are, why are these guys interested in talking about porn? Like, why is that even, why is that an issue? If that's where you're at, this seminar's going to be a little bit bumpy. Um, but um, <laughs> but um, anyway, what I, what I really hope is that, is that, you know, we can look at this together as brothers and sisters in Christ looking to support one another, help one another in our, in our faith. And um, one thing that I would mention, I've, I've got, we've got some resources that we'd love to give you. I've um, got a whole load of handouts, and hopefully we'll have enough. But if we haven't, we'll get some printed and leave them at the info desk um, uh, in, in, in the auditorium. But um, there's a few helpful resources on there. And one website that I found really helpful in preparing this is a website called Fight the New Drug, um, which is, and lots of, the, lots of the content from this actually comes from there including this quote. The website is not a Christian um, website, a Christian project. Um, it's a non-religious, non-political organization. But um, for example, they, they got a quote in there from a guy called Gary Brooks, who's a psychologist who's worked with porn addicts for 30 years. And he says, anytime a person spends much time with the por- usual pornography usage cycle, it can't help but be a depressing, demeaning, self-loathing kind of experience. The worse people feel about themselves, the more they seek comfort wherever they can get it. And normally they would be able to rely on people closest to them to help them through the hard times, a partner, a friend, a family member. But most porn consumers aren't exactly excited to, to tell anyone about their porn habits, least of all their partner. And he concludes, so they turn to the easiest source of comfort available, more porn. And, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm convinced that statistically speaking, there'll be, there'll, be, there'll be many people in this room who are familiar with that experience and that cycle. Um, and what I want to just reassure you before we really get into this is that, is that we are not going to be looking at this topic today through a lens of shame. We're going to be looking at this topic through a lens of truth and grace. And we're going to be looking to, to, to look at those two things together at the same time. Jesus had this way of saying you know, really profound things where he, where he made a lot of points in a short amount of time. And I think one example is this. When he said, Jesus said, you have heard that it was said you should not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 
And I think Jesus is making a number of profound points in that statement. But two things that I notice is that, is that on one hand, Jesus is making it clear that, that giving into lust is, is, is not right. It's a sin. But at the same time, we should be wary about judging other people because we are all sinners at the end of the day. And so I want to start in the same way by, 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 by considering truth and grace and holding two truths in tension. That, that on one hand, the reality is porn is, is actually sinful in God's eyes. It's sinful. But at the same time, Jesus loves us as we are. And you need to, we need to look at those two things at the same time and hold them together, truth and grace. If you are a follower of Jesus and you're struggling with porn, lust, masturbation, um, fantasies, just any form of sexual behavior that you, that, you, that you know just isn't right, then I want to tell you that, you that you're not alone. You're not alone in the sense that there'll be other people who are facing the same struggle, but you're not alone in the sense that you are part of the body of Christ. You have, you have brothers and sisters alongside you who want to support you in this. So you're not alone in every sense of the word. And we're going to fight this together. Just so you can understand where I'm um, coming from with this issue, um, for me, um, pornography wasn't really um, the big issue for me growing up. Um, but, but, but that was probably more to do with availability than virtue because I grew up in like the Stone Ages before Google. And, um, <laughs> and, 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 and I think, you know, if I had one of these when I was um, growing up, it doubtlessly would have been. Um, but for me personally, I came to faith around the age of about 21 in a meaningful way. Um, and by that point, as, a, as an adult, masturbation was very much an established part of my life. And, um, and I discovered at that point that although I had decided to start following Jesus, um, that pattern of behavior didn't just switch off. I sort of came to this conclusion that it wasn't the right thing for me, but I, I was in a cycle of, of addictive behavior. And in truth, it actually took time. It took years for me to really start to walk in, in a sense of discipline and freedom in that area of my life. It took a commitment to prayer, to discipline, to, to reading the Bible, to getting into an accountability triplet with a couple of other guys who were up for going on that journey. And through his transforming power, the Holy Spirit in me helped me over time to, to start to walk out into freedom. And I don't share that example as like a, just as a good example. The reason I share that really is more to demonstrate it that, that, that we need to be open about where we struggle and we need to acknowledge that nobody is perfect, that we're all vulnerable and also that we can't face this alone because God didn't intend us to, otherwise he wouldn't have made the church. Okay, so let's, let's remember that, that we're, that we're in this together as we do look at this, this first element of truth, that, that porn is sinful. Now, the culture around us would, like, I think about my mates who, who, who don't go to church. They would not agree with that statement, would they? And maybe that would be the view that you would take, that, that poor, maybe it's not something that we're super proud of, but I think there is a, a narrative in our culture that we are uh, surrounded, immersed in, is that pornography is kind of like it's normal. It's kind of part of everyday life. And, and, and I can think of, as a pastor, over the years, lots of discussions that I found myself in where people are basically asking that question, so is it? So what is wrong with it? It doesn't seem to be actually doing anybody any harm. Um, you know, as a Christian, you might say, look, it's something that it seems to help me, like it helps relieve tension. You might say, um, you know, if it wasn't for porn, I'd probably be like sleeping with my boyfriend or my girlfriend. So it's, sort of, it's almost helping me avoid sin. So perhaps it's even a, a good thing. 
And, um, and, and, and we can find lots of ways of, of, of looking at the issue and questioning that idea of, like, is it actually wrong? Um, certainly the statistics are telling us that, that that is the attitude of our culture. As a human race, we are now consuming pornography on a staggering scale. So uh, it's a $97 billion global industry. And um, apparently each year, the, the world's biggest pornography website each year, um, about, currently about 4.6 billion hours of pornography are downloaded from this is one website. It's fair to say that, as I said uh, earlier this morning, Every one of an, every single person in this room, either your life or the life of somebody very close to you, will be um, affected by porn at the moment because it's just a massive part of our culture, and we need to acknowledge that. Um, and and one thing that I want to say about that um, to you as a generation of young adults is that it hasn't always been that way. Like what is currently our normal? What is currently normal? It hasn't always been that way. In fact, very recently, it was kind of different. Like, I, I, I can think as, like, I'm, I'm 38, and, um, and I've seen a massive shift in the, in the landscape of, of porn in the last 10 years. I remember the first time that I saw a pornographic video, um, I, was, I was 15 years old, okay? So this is 1995, three years um, before Google, 12 years before the iPhone. I was, um, I, was, I was with a bunch of mates. We were going to the park to play football, knocked at a friend's house to see if he was coming out to play. He was like, guys, get in here. We all piled into his living room. He has a VHS. Does anyone remember what a VHS is? VHS, puts it in, and we watched this video. And the thing that um, I remember, I, I, I can still remember what I saw on that screen that day. And I can still remember the feeling of, like, excitement and awakening and kind of partly disgust, but also sort of being drawn into something. But the thing that, that, that is probably a different story to so many stories today is that the next time I saw a video like that was four years later. I was 19 and it was a similar situation at a party. And what I mean is in those days, if you wanted to view pornography, you had to physically, you had to go into a news agent and, and get a magazine off the top shelf or you had to get hold of a, of a video or something like that. There was an availability issue. Today, um, an investigation by the London School of Economics said that 90% of youngsters aged between Eight and 16 have accessed porn online, many without mind, meaning to find it, most while doing their homework. The, the landscape's changed. Today, it's something that is, it's, by default, it is put into our lives. Porn sites re re receive more traffic um, than Netflix, Amazon, and Twitter combined. They estimate it's at least 30% of the data transferred across the internet. 64% of young people, both genders, aged between 13 to 24, actively seek out pornography weekly or often. If you ask any pastor who's involved in, in, in ministering to people, um, probably especially to young adults, but, but to be honest, this is an all-age thing now, um, they will tell you that as they seek to discipline people, raise up, lead, disciple people, not discipline, dis disciple people, raise up leaders, develop them, this pastoral issue of pornography just keeps on coming up time and time and time again. And it's, and it's not just, um, there, was, there was a survey by Barna, who's a Christian research organization, and that they found that 57% of, of pastors, 64% of youth pastors admit that they've struggled with porn either currently or in the past. 
And that, that, that youth pastor's number stuck out to me because it's, it's just the same as the number 64% in the other survey of just the general population. In other words, this is an issue inside and out the church and inside and out of leadership. But I guess I still haven't addressed that question, have I? Like, so, so what's the problem with it? Why is it, why is it wrong? Why do we see porn as a sin? Well, let's get, we're going to get into the, into the Bible now. So, so I want to suggest that porn is actually sinful because it under, undermines God's design for sex and humanity. One of the big lies of porn, if not the big lie, is that it pretends to be this bigger, bolder, more amazing, more orgasmic view of, of sex. And, and it also paints a kind of an exaggerated view of humanity in terms of like physical attributes. I have to choose my words carefully there. But it's, it's, it's actually fake. And it's, it's a counterfeit. And it falls so far short of God's design for sex and humanity. There's this really interesting ex- scientific experiment that took place back in the 50s where these two researchers, um, Tinbergen and Magnus, they did this experiment where they made um, cardboard butterflies. And they, they, they painted these cardboard butterflies to be like the females, but they exaggerated their features and they made the patterns on their wings bolder and brighter than the, than the real butterflies. And then they put these cardboard butterflies in the enclosure. And of course, the males immediately started to, to mate with the cardboard butterflies. And, um, you know, it's ironic because there's these real hot, naked lady butterflies. They're like, oh, I'm just... <laughs> I'm just here. And, um, but they were all over these bits of cardboard. And we're like stupid butterflies. But, but of course, the reality is that as humans, we're, we're, we haven't figured this out ourselves. We're falling for cardboard butterflies billions of times a year. C.S. Lewis, who, um, who wrote the Narnia books, um, he, he, he wrote a letter once to, to a friend of his, and he, talking about the issue of masturbation to a friend. And he described the depiction of women in pornography like a harem of imaginary brides. And it's just chilling, the language that he used. He says, for the harem is always accessible, always subservient, calls for no sacrifices or adjustments, and can be endowed with erotic and psychological attractions which no woman can rival. Among these shadowy brides, He's always adored, always the perfect lover. No demand is made on his unselfishness, no mortification ever imposed on his vanity. In the end, they merely become the medium through which he increasingly adores himself. It's kind of quite stirring, that language, isn't it? But you might be asking, but why? Why is it fake? What is so fake about porn's portrayal of sex? Why does it fall short of God's design? Well, there's a few reasons. For a start, pornography totally ignores one of the primary purposes of sex. Um, and, 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 we, and we see that if we go to the first mention of sex in the Bible in Genesis. Um, it says, God blessed them, Adam and Eve, and he said, be fruitful and increase in number. Sex, in part, is about making babies. It's about creating new life it's about demonstrating God's awesome power to make new life and here we see that sex has a purpose that's bigger than just pleasure and gratification it's about great it's about life and porn obviously totally ignores that purpose it's not even part of the story 
But as we read through the Bible, we see that actually there is a broader picture that emerges of God's design for sex and sexuality. So skipping on now to Jesus, when he was talking about marriage in Mark's Gospel, he said, For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united with his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one. God designed sex as this kind of like expression of love and union and commitment and trust between, between a man and a woman in the context of marriage. He's designed it that way. And what it is really is, is it serves as a picture. It serves as, as a reflection of the perfect, trusting, committed love between Jesus and the church. It's there to, to reflect that and highlight that. And of course, the contrasting message of pornography is that sex is not about commitment and trust and loyalty. It's about gratification. It's about having sex wherever you want it, whenever you want it, with whomever. It's about having sex with like the plumber if, if he happens to knock on the door at the moment when you just feel in the mood. And so in porn, sex is really just about getting what you want out of it. And that's not God's design. The Bible also reveals that our humanity is something that is so much bigger than, than the picture of humanity that we see in porn. Remember in Genesis, um, it says that God created us in his image. We, create, we carry, we bear his image. We were made that way so that we could reflect his image to the world. And, uh, and so that we could also, we were created in his image so that we could have a relationship with him, so that we could know him. In John's gospel, it says, to all who did receive him, he, to those who believed in his name, he, he gave us the right to become his children. Every single one of us, we're created in God's image. We're created to be his children. Your humanity is something that is just utterly precious and profound. But we're, we're immersed in, in a culture that, that doesn't acknowledge that, that objectifies humanity and reduces it down to, to, to our image. And we see this across the board, not just in pornography, from, from airbrush magazines to, to like young, young lads in the playground looking at girls and, and going like, oh, she's a seven, she's an eight, just like reducing them down to a number. And, and, and I remember doing that as a kid and thinking it was like, you know, banter, but it's, it's pathetic really because you're taking a daughter of God Someone who's created and carries the Lord's image. Someone who's been, who's been designed with gifts and skills and abilities and a personality, a personhood, and reducing them down to a number. So it's, it's pathetic. It's a pathetic thing to do. And to God, it's, like, it's abhorrent. But that objectification is part of our culture. And it's the reason that, that, that we're so obsessed with image. It's probably part of the reason why, you know, most of the, um, many of the people in this room probably felt like pressure to put some makeup on this morning. It's probably the reason why most of the guys spent far too long in front of the mirror this morning because we're, we're kind of concerned about our image. And that, in, in a way, is, is in part, there is, there is something designed in that, that, that we're designed to enjoy beauty. But there is a spirit of objectification, I think, at work in this age that turns sons and daughters of God into a two-dimensional image of moving, moving body parts on a screen. And, and, to, and to go from there to there, that's, that's quite a downgrade, actually. Um, it, it, and there's scientific evidence that this is how it works. Um, so this is, um, there was a recent study at Princeton University where psychologists, they, um, 
they, they monitored the brain's medial prefrontal cortex, this part of the brain, basically, that is involved in recognizing human faces. It's the part of our brain that recognizes humanity, in other words. And what they did was they, they, they monitored that while people looked at photos of other humans. And they showed them pictures of people's faces, and this part of the brain is, is, is buzzing away. And then they started to show them slightly more like racy pictures, uh, where people were scantily clad. And that part of the brain immediately just switched off. So in other words, they stopped seeing their humanity and they just started seeing a bunch of body parts. When we look at porn, when we look at a person on our screen, that person in our mind becomes, for a moment, not a child of God, not a fellow human being, but an object who's there to serve our needs. And I guess the question that we have to ask ourselves is like, do I want to engage in that? Do I want to be, do I want to be part of that? Invariably, when people use pornography, whether, whether they have a faith or not, um, the research shows that they generally, people do feel a sense of shame around it. It's not something that they feel super proud about, because I, and I believe that's because that as humans, we know somewhere, somewhere deep inside ourselves, we know that they were made for more than this and that we are too, that we're made for more. And the Bible's like, yeah, you are. You super duper are. Um, in the Bible, there's this letter that um, Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. And, um, and he wrote this letter to give them advice to address a few issues that were going in the church, including some issues around, around sexual immorality. And he asked them this question. He says, don't you know, and I'd ask this question to you, don't you know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. And then he continues and he says, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you? The Holy Spirit is in every single one of us who's decided to follow Jesus. The Holy Spirit who we've received from God and this is fascinating, you're not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your bodies. Honour God with your bodies because it's not even, it's not even, we're stewards of our bodies. If I lent you a Ferrari, you wouldn't go and trash it. God is inviting us to participate, I think, in something really cool here. He's inviting us to honour him with our bodies. And um, this, again, this, this goes against the culture of, the, the narrative of the culture around us. At the moment, um, we're told this message that actually, like, you know, what you do with your body is your, is your thing, and you do with it whatever you want, whatever makes you happy. So long as it feels good for you, then it's right. It's good. And so we convince ourselves that, that what we do with our boyfriend, what we do with our girlfriend, what we do when we stare at a screen, it's just up to us, and it's just a physical thing, but there's something deeply spiritual going on when we engage in these kind of activities because our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, Paul's saying. And so depending on how we act out our sexuality, it can either glorify God or it can steal glory from him. It can take it away from him. And um, the Bible paints a picture of, of, of actually a vision of sex that, that glorifies God, that glorifies him instead. Um, it's in, in Proverbs chapter 5, um, there's a brilliant passage about sex. It's got some really sort of funny metaphors. It says, um, May your fountain be blessed. 
And if you're wondering, is that a euphemism? Yeah, it is, yeah. <laughs> may your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer. May her, may her breasts satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. And um, that is a vision and a design of sex that's like so much more than porn. Some great stuff in there. And uh, personally, uh, just my experience, I've been married for just coming up to about 12 years now. And I don't want to do an overshare about this, but like, yeah, like, <laughs> I just love it that God's designed sex the way he has. God has, has, has created and designed something in terms of sex and in terms of humanity that, that is good. And what he's inviting all of us to do, he's inviting us all as his people to participate in, in upholding and protecting and honouring and celebrating the good creations that he has made. If you just pull that down now, that would be great. Just to illustrate it, so imagine that I, imagine that I am a vast mate, a potter, potter, and I've created something good. I'm like, oh man, I've created this vase and it's just beautiful. It's the most cool thing. And imagine that I entrusted it to you and I said, look, I want you to, I want you to take hold of this and I want you to look after it for me and I want you to just celebrate it. I want you to uphold it. I want you to kind of like put it on a pedestal. But be careful because it is a fragile thing, okay? So I want you to treat it carefully and actually you're going to need to protect it. But I want you to put it somewhere where like, the world can see how good it is. That is effectively what he has invited us to do in terms of upholding and celebrating his design for sex, his design for, for, for humanity. And he invites all of us to participate in this. If you're married, he's like, would you, would you demonstrate your love and your trust and your commitment in your marriage by, by enjoying sex? And obviously that's great fun. But, but also, if you're, if you're single, would you, would you honour this? Would you protect this? Would you celebrate what this is by, by, by protecting it and, 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 and acknowledging that it belongs in a certain place in the context of a marriage? And he invites us to do that. That is the job of the church when it comes to sex and humanity, to, to do this so that the world would be like, wow, that is a cool thing that God has created. But what we do, I think, so much in the church is we go, okay, God, yeah, like, I acknowledge, yep, sex, marriage, okay, cool. And great design, by the way, God. Orgasms. Love your work. But, <laughs> but like, how safe and protected does it actually need to be? Like, is it okay if I sort of rock the platform a little bit like is it okay if I you know masturbate maybe but I don't look at porn or is it okay if I kind of like look at porn but I don't masturbate is it okay if I kind of I'm not going to sleep with my boyfriend but is it okay like is it okay if we do other things um is it okay if we kind of like I'm, I'm, I'm going to look at porn but it's only softcore or I'm going to watch like tv programs that have like sex scenes in them because I mean really I like the plot um so is that <laughs> Is that okay? How much can I shake the, the, the pedestal without smashing the vase? That's the kind of question that we ask. And the, and, and the question that I want to ask us to consider is, like, if our job is upholding this and protecting it, are those questions helpful? Are they going to help us to actually do, to play our role? It's not like, you know, say if a parent was to go to buy a car seat for their child. They're not going to go into mother care and go, can you, can you help me find the, the car seat that like just, just passed the safety tests? I want, I want the one that's like barely legal. Yeah? 
that's not, like, that would be stupid. So why is it that we do this? Why do we ask? How much can I rock this pedestal? And as a pastor, I can think of just countless conversations where this has basically been the tone of the conversation. Like, how far is too far? And can you see that that's n- ultimately, there's only one thing that's going to happen, isn't it? Eventually, it's going to fall off and smash. So, no, I won't do it. <laughs> so, how can, we, how can we do that? Because if we don't, then all we're going to do is we're going to just live an uninspiring life that's filled with excuses. You know, I need to do this because I'm lonely. Um, I, I need this because I'm single. When I, when I, when I, when I you know, start, find some, a partner, I'll stop. Um, I need this because otherwise I'd fall into temptation. I'd sleep with my boyfriend or my girlfriend. Oh, I need this in my life because my wife has got a, a lower sex drive than me. And otherwise it's going to cause tension in our relationships. Oh, it's, it's just what happens to me when I'm low. Um, I know it's not ideal, but I've kind of got it under control. We tell ourselves these uninspiring, pathetic excuses. And I believe that as long as we entertain these excuses, essentially we're denying something that God has made clear, that, that it is wrong, that it has no rightful place in our lives. So it's just wrong full stop. And it may be that, that you, you, you're at that place, you've, 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 made, you've found that conclusion in your life, but actually you found that you just can't stop. And it may be that actually, if that's the situation, it may be that you've got a level of addiction in your life. And, 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 and you know, the, the truth and the, the clear thing to say is there that once an addiction is set in, it's extremely unlikely that you'll be able to break free without help from other people. You're not going to be able to do it on your own. You need help from other people. You need help from God. But I personally believe that you can only begin to receive that help once you've reached this conclusion that no more excuses, no more justifications. This has no rightful place in my life. As a follower of Jesus, I need his help to change. Have you reached that point? If this is a thing for you, have you reached that point? And, 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 and this is the point where I need to remind you to look at these two things, these two truths, intentions, that, that I believe that this is a sin, but at the same time, God loves each one of us as we are. The moment that we come um, face to face with our sinfulness and acknowledge it in our life, and all of us are sinners in different ways, that's the point where we realize that we fall short of God's glory, that he embraces us with his gracious love. So no matter what sort of a mess you personally might feel like this is for you, know that God loves you. I just want to, I've got this photo of a picture. I don't know whether you've seen it before. Um, but I've, I, I, if this is something, if you're in that place, just take a look at this painting for a moment. The guy there, I don't know if you can see, in his hand he's got like a, um, a hammer and a nail, the kind of hammer and nail they would have used to, to nail Jesus to the cross. And as he has those things in his hand, Jesus is embracing him. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. With Jesus, there is always truth, but there is always grace. So, remember that. And uh, we're we're just going to move on to look at a couple of other aspects of this. In a similar kind of vein, I want to suggest that that porn is is not just simple, it's, it's bad for us. But also I want to talk about how God longs to set us free. So why is, um, why is porn bad for us? Again, this is something that um, the narrative of our culture would say, 
you know, they would challenge this idea, wouldn't they? Like, if you go on the BBC website or somewhere like that for, to look for some sort of just secular, balanced advice, they'd probably say something like, yeah, porn, it's kind of, you know, be discreet about it, but it's kind of part of your life. Um, and it's kind of okay. If it feels good for you, then do it. But I want to ask the question, is it? Um, and just to illustrate that, back in 1929, there was a German doctor called Fritz Linkit, Linkint, and he published for the first time some statistical evidence that smoking um, was linked to lung cancer, right? And, um, and facts from that point started to emerge, statistical evidence about the, the health hazards associated with smoking. But of course, the culture at the time didn't respond to that. They just carried on smoking and smoking and smoking. Why was that? Well, it was because they were being fed a mixture of messages, including stuff like, like, like these on the screen. So, I don't know, you can see there's an advert there where it's like, more doctors smoke camels than any other cigarette. And, um, and they, even, they even hijacked Santa and got him on the act. Um, and of course, now, knowing what we know about smoking, we look at those kind of adverts and we're like, oh my goodness, how did people fall for that? This is ridiculous. But of course, in the same way, I believe porn is doing immeasurable damage to our society, to our well-being and health as, as a nation and as a world. But we're being fed this message by the narrative of our culture that it's actually harmless and that actually is probably a pretty healthy thing overall. Uh, a recent government report made this recommendation. Though It said, uh, the government should take an evidence-based approach to addressing the harms of pornography, similar to the huge investment there has been over many years in tackling road safety or preventing public health problems caused by lawful behaviour, such as smoking. And it also drew the conclusion, there is significant research suggesting that there is a relationship between the consumption of pornography and sexist attitudes and sexually aggressive behaviours, including violence. So even in the sort of government research, they're beginning to see that maybe porn isn't as harmless as we thought. And the research is in fact showing us the opposite. It's showing us that it's, it's damaging what marriages. Research is showing that, that, that um, pornography consumption is linked to less stability relation, in relationships, an increased risk of infidelity, um, poorer reports of, of sort of sexual, um, what's the word? Um, satisfaction in marriage, a greater likelihood of divorce. Um, recent research found that of all the factors considered, porn use was the second strongest indicator that a marriage would suffer. And um, people who are in marriages, but um, um, porn is an active part of their life, they often see marriage as a constraint. So it damages marriages. It also um, suppresses and abuses women. I mean, to be, to be clear, I would say porn suppresses and abuses all the humans involved, but I think particularly women, because there is this overwhelming objectification of the female form and this prevailing narrative that, that it's acceptable to, to use, to abuse women for fun, uh, for sport, for gratification. Apparently the most common female role stated in porn titles is that of women in their 20s portraying teenagers. A study of 14 to 19 year olds found that, that females who consume porn were at a significantly greater likelihood of being victims themselves of sexual harassment or sexual assault. Porn is not good for women. Porn is a, it's a gateway to worse things as well. 
because it, is, it, 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 it interacts with our brain in the same way as addictive substances do, it, it, it inevitably leads us into um, a sort of a, a pattern of increased and escalating usage in terms of frequency and also in terms of potency. A Swedish study of 18-year-old men found that frequent users of porn were significantly more likely to have sold and bought sex than other boys of the same age. It's fueling child abuse. Recorded child sexual exploitation known as child pornography is one of the fastest growing online businesses. 624,000 child porn trainers, traders have been discovered online in the US. And it also fuels sex trafficking. Um, this one about sex trafficking, this really is a seminar in itself, but just to give, just to summarize, the basic wake up call is, is that when, when you look at pornography on a screen, not all of it is, is consensual in terms of the people that are in the images. Um, in many cases, it's not consensual. Many of the people involved are doing so because they're coerced. They may be financially controlled by those who are making it. They may be being forced to do things through sub as, as a result of a substance addiction. And um, this is something that, as I was, I'm not going to share sort of unless I'm intentionally trying to not overshare stuff that's going to be unhelpful, but, but as I researched, I found examples of, of women, women's testimony and talking about how they were forced to engage in violent or abusive um, activity that they didn't agree to. So it's, it's, it's fueling that. Every click, every swipe on a screen is, is effectively us participating and encouraging that. And of course, the question is, do we want to be part of that? An estimated 22% of global human trafficking, which affects 30 million people around the world, is, is sex trafficking. And it's, 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 it's difficult or impossible to precisely estimate what is essentially a hidden and an illegal trade. But evidently, a significant proportion of these victims are involved in the pornography industry. So in summary, what I'm basically saying is, porn is bad for the world. But it's also bad for us on a personal level. Um, it affects the way our, our brains work. So um, in, in, in researching this, I found out a little bit of stuff about the brain. Apparently, the brain is made up of 100 billion special nerves called neurons. Uh, and they carry electrical signals, signals between your brain and your muscles so that you can do stuff. And when we're, um, when we're learning, I mean, the brain's amazing. God created something amazing there. But when we are learning how to do something, we start to form these things called neurological pathways, which are a bit like um, they're like a, a sort of a, a pathway between the neuron and the and the and the and the receptor, and it's a bit like a trail in the woods. The more you use them, the more you think along those lines, that trail becomes thicker, it becomes stronger. Um, and so, for example, that's why when you're learning to drive a car, initially it has to be a really conscious thing, and you're like, really, you know, you have to remember how to do everything. And then, of course, as you learn more and more, it just increasingly becomes autopilot because you've formed neurological pathways around it. And the, the brain, as we grow, is um, it never stops wiring and rewiring us itself in this way, okay? This is something that's a process that goes on through our whole life. And what we now understand is that viewing pornography is like the ideal conditions for forming these neurological pathways. Um, the narrative of our culture is that, is that it's ironic that we, that we find freedom through, through porn or through expressing our sexuality in whatever way we seem, seems best to us. But the reality is, is that it's something that, that we get trapped into as our brains become um, addicted to it.
people unable to, to get away from a screen for more than a couple of days, people who are addicted to that release of dopamine that their brain releases when they look at a certain type of image, but they find themselves um, becoming normalized to it and then seeking darker and edgier content all the time, more and more people in front of the camera being controlled and abused. That doesn't sound like freedom to me. It sounds like bondage, it sounds like slavery. I just want to show you a video from the Fight the New Drug website that kind of talks about this brain thing. On April 25, 2015, an earthquake hit Nepal. Within 54 seconds, it had leveled over half a million homes and killed nearly 10,000 people. It was devastating. But what happened next was incredible. Almost immediately, neighbors from China rushed across the border to clear it up. Within 15 minutes, India had mobilized a full-scale relief effort, including medical supplies and rescue dogs. Before the day was over, people, money, and supplies were pouring in from 60 countries, 35 relief organizations, and countless businesses. Consider the world. More than ever before, we're able to help reduce human suffering anywhere, from natural disasters to a child's medical bills. In a remarkable way, technology can focus our attention and rally us around a single worthy cause, combining millions of individual acts of kindness into a massive force for good. Or, combining millions of individual selfish acts into a massive force for harm. If the private act of viewing porn can rewire a brain, devastate a relationship, and destroy a family, what happens when that act is multiplied by a hundred million? What happens when it isn't just you seeking ever more explicit pornographic material, but your next door neighbor, your teacher, your doctor? What happens when it's half your country? Today's rising generation is facing the issue of pornography at a level our world has never seen. In 2015, 4.3 billion hours of pornography were watched on a single website. That's half a million years. What are the consequences of 4 billion hours when pornography has been shown to increase marital infidelity by over 300%? What are the consequences when 88% of the scenes depict aggression or violence? What are the consequences when the porn industry has now been linked to abuse on set, child exploitation, and even human trafficking? When we discover that products are tied to abusive things like child labor, we're willing to change what we buy. Isn't it time we had the same conversation about pornography's human impact? Somewhere, right now, actual lives are being made far worse by the million little mouse clicks around the world. So, choose love and humanity. Click on something else, take a stand, and pour your time and energy into something, anything, that might just make this world a little better for all of us. So that's, like, I, I, love, I love that. It's a sort of a... A, a totally, as I say, secular organisation, as far as I'm aware. But they reached this conclusion that our brain was, was, was made for more than this. And I like what they say about how um, this, this, if, once we wire our brain a certain way, it's not permanent. It can be rewired, and that's scientifically proven. But to me, it, it shows that it's, God's designed our brains that way. Um, in Romans 12, uh, verse 2, it says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And if this is an issue for you, if you're like, oh my goodness, my brain, I've, I've like, what have I done to my brain? Know that, that, that through the Holy Spirit, you, your brain, and through the choices that you make, your brain can be renewed. It can be rewired, and it can be made free, and you can receive healing. 
just read a, a, a bit of an extract from a testimony of Guy in our church, um, um, who's been part of a, a pornography support, um, pornography users support group here. Um, he said, my addiction definitely got worse from the age of 15. Even at a time when I committed my life to Jesus before I turned 16, it was probably from that point on that I realised that I had a problem because no matter how good my intentions were, I could not go without pornography and masturbation. I remember saying once to myself that if I got a girlfriend, then I would stop. I had a girlfriend for a year when I was 16. This didn't change anything. He later went on to explain that things began to change when he, he spoke to eventually to a friend and asked for some help and asked for some prayer. He said, from that moment on, I felt like a huge weight had been lifted on me, off me. I no longer felt trapped by my addiction. But of course, this did not mean that I was suddenly free from my addiction. But I did feel refreshed and God helped me see the light at the end of the tunnel where there had been not been any before. I threw myself into church life, getting baptised a few months later and becoming more involved in small group than I had before. I was encouraged to read my Bible more frequently and was drawn to Ephesians 6, where I pray regularly that God would cover me in his armour and protect me when I felt tempted. It was not an easy process and there were definitely lots of bumps along the way. But during my second year of university, I began to see and experience what freedom looked like. Over the next year or so, the gaps in my relapses became less frequent, and with God's help, I've now been free from pornography addiction for over four years. He says, the voice of temptation in my head is no longer the loudest voice. God has given me strength and determination not to return there anymore. Now I try to make sure I read God's word each day and regularly pray to him for protection. And when I have time on my own, I have to be intentional about it and try to plan carefully to avoid being tempted. Being accountable to others is also really important and finding somebody you can trust to be completely honest with is vital. So we asked him the question, what would you say to somebody who is struggling currently with pornography or sexual addiction? And he says, freedom is possible. No matter what lies the enemy might try and feed you, with God's help, you can and you will break free. And he is now involved in leading other people into freedom. So if this is something that you're like, you just feel trapped in in the moment, that's you in a few years' time if you start to make choices now. You can, you can be a person who's leading others out of this, not just for yourself, but for them too. Because I believe that, that I, what I say, I, I do believe that, that porn is sinful. I believe that it is it's not good for us. It's not good for the world. But God loves us as we are, and he longs to set us free. And he longs for us as a church to participate in him freeing the world. God has assembled us as, as the body of Christ. We are his body, his hands and his feet. And it's our job to, to fulfill his mission of setting the world free. But, excuse my bluntness, it's hard for the body of Christ to do its job and be the body of Christ when it has its eyes on a screen and its hand in its pants. And I realise that's kind of like a blunt, maybe borderline um, uh, sort of image, but it, it's the reality of where we're at. But God loves us as we are, and he longs to set us free and change that. He longs for us to be a generation who helps liberate this whole generation from this just tsunami of, uh, of sexual darkness. So wherever you're at with this issue today... I really hope that you don't feel like this has been too heavy and too filled with sort of like, you know, any sense of shame. Because rather it is about instilling hope and extending an invitation to every single one of us to make a difference in this area, in our lives and in the lives of others. So if you're asking what could be my next step, what could I do today? 
It depends on where you're at. If this is not an issue for you right now, I want to ask you the question, who are you supporting? Who do you know well enough to, to have that conversation where you say, hey, hey, hey mate, um, is this an issue for you in any way? Is this how you're doing with this area of your life? Is there any way that I can offer you support? Who do you know well enough to, to ask that kind of question? If this is an issue for you, maybe your step today is actually just coming to terms with it. It's, 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 it's coming face to face with the issue and going, do you know what, no more excuses. I need to acknowledge this has no rightful place in my life. And I need to find some tools. I need to find somebody to help me forward with this. And as I said at the start, we've got, um, you know, we, have, we haven't been able to have time to go through a lot of detail about how we can unpick the cycle of addiction and tools and techniques and things like that. But we do have a handout with some really helpful pointers in it. But it might be that, um, but that you've tried to change and you found that you can't. It's got darker, it's got more controlling, and there's a level of, of, of addiction. And as I say, if you're in that place, then it's not as simple as saying, oh yeah, I'm gonna stop now. You will need help. You, it's unlikely that you'll find long-term freedom alone. Um, so, so for you, perhaps the next step is to try and figure out who is the right person to go to to ask for help. And you might be asking, who do I, how do I do that? Who, who, who can I go to? Do you talk to your partner is a question that you might be asking. Um, it's really important to be honest with our partners. In a, in a Christian relationship or in any relationship, it's important to be open and honest and truthful. But at the same time, we need to be wise and think about the damage that certain disclosures and information could, 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 um, could, to, could do to your partner. And I'd say it really depends on where your relationship is at as well. So this is probably not a first date conversation that you want to have. But... Um, but I would advise that you get some advice from a small group leader um, or a leader um, who's, you know, who you're looking to who could give you advice about that. If, if, if you're thinking about what to say to your partner, they, it'd be good to process it with somebody who's wise. Get some good counsel. But the reality is that you're, in terms of ongoing support, um, whilst it's important to be honest and open in a relationship, you are going to need some ongoing support from a person who's less, who's less emotionally involved in your relationship. Okay, you're going to need to, to have a person in your life who's, who's not your partner as well. And that might be a friend, it could be a family member, it could be a church leader, a small group leader, um, somebody in the church that you, that you look up to. Um, I was chatting to the, to the guy who leads the support group here, and his advice was, don't choose somebody who's just going to be nice to you. Um, choose somebody who's going to be brutally honest with you. Um, and also, it's really important to just ensure that as you're thinking about who that is, um, that you're just careful that it's not going to be a relationship that, that could be potentially complicated by romantic feelings. So it's, it's best to go with somebody of the same gender and, and somebody who there's, there's, there's no potential for you to feel attracted to them or the other way around. Um, and, uh, and, and, and again, you might want to get some advice from a leader about that. It may be that um, you're in a place where you're thinking you know, the stuff, it, this has escalated to me now for a place where it's pretty dark. And uh, if that person knew this about me, it would change our relationship. And it might be that you're fearful of the consequences. It might be that you're in a position of leadership and you're thinking, man, is this going to affect my, my, my role? Is this going to affect my position? It might be that you've got yourself involved in something that, that's actually illegal and you're concerned about the potential consequences. And the, the, the only thing that I can say about that is that Ultimately, 
we, we can't protect you from, from the consequences. You know, when we, when we sin, there often are consequences. It does affect our life down the line in some ways. But I just want to encourage you that, that hiding it and continue to live in, in deceit and darkness and continuing is, is not going to make things get better. It's going to inevitably make things get worse. And in the long term, the, the path to light, the path to freedom, the path to recovery is in bringing these things out into the open in a truthful way. So yes, there may be consequences. Yes, it may be that you have to take a step back from leadership for a time. But honestly, you have to, you're, as young adults, you have to ask the question, where do I want to get to? You know, in 10 years' time, in 20 years' time, what's the person that I, want to f- that I want forming within me? And so, you know, sometimes it's one step forward, two steps back. Be brave. Be brave. Open up and tell someone. So, um, as I say, um, it may, also I'd say it may be that um, for you, you're at a point of addiction where you actually need some professional help, some counselling, some therapy. And again, there's... Um, take that resource sheet away with you um, and there's some really helpful resources that will help you do a bit of an assessment there. There's one website where you can do a bit of a questionnaire to figure out sort of like on a scale really like where, where, where you're at and sort of do that, come, come to terms with that before you seek, decide whether you need some professional help perhaps if it's a, you know, quite a, a formed pattern of addictive behaviour. But I would just encourage you to, to take that step, whatever it might be for you. As I say, we, we, we haven't got time to go into lots of details about more techniques and tools about breaking addiction. But what we can do is begin the process of inviting the Holy Spirit um, to come and breathe life into us, to pour his grace over us and to, and, to, and to set people free. Because, of course, he can do that. He can set us free in a moment. So... Um, Wherever you're at with this, let's just get that, that um, picture up on the screen again. And let's just spend just, just a minute, let's just, in silence, let's just meditate on that verse. Wherever you're at with this, and in different ways, we all need to read this verse, okay? So let's just meditate on that for a moment.